This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. Here we are back again. Hi. Hi. Long time no speak. Long time no see. Yeah. Long time In no person. See. Yeah. Kate and I have had a little hiatus, as you may well know, if you have been following the Fertility Podcast for a while. But if this is your first listen, well, we have been, I have been doing this for such a time that we wanted to shake it all up again and really kind of start this episode as a starting point, really. The idea being that you maybe are trying for a baby and it hasn't happened and you were expecting it to happen like that. And this starting point, Kate, when people Mm. first come to you, do you find that people had an inkling that maybe, you know, if they have problematic periods or have you, that maybe their fertility is going to be an issue? Or are people coming to you totally shocked that maybe they've tried for a couple of months, it's not happened, and they're now freaking out. They, They just never expected this, which we know a lot of the time, most of us are totally unaware of how difficult this can be. That is such a good question. And short answer is, I'd say probably about 50-50, because there'll be the ladies that have perhaps not used contraception for a while and maybe weren't particularly worried about it, perhaps weren't really trying, but you know, for whatever reason, weren't using contraception. And then after a while, I thought, do you know what? We've not really been that careful for the last few months or a few years and nothing's happened. So I think those women are certainly have an inkling. But then other ladies will come along perhaps after just stopping the pill. And then like we all think, because we're told at school, oh, you you know, you'll get pregnant really quickly. Be careful. And they stop the pill and nothing happens. And those are the ones that are really quite shocked because they assumed that it would happen so quickly. And you're going to hear us talking more about getting your head around your cycle in terms of, you know, things to think about. But we're kind of at this point talking about heterosexual couples maybe trying and obviously if you're not in a heterosexual couple maybe you're not in a couple and you're wondering what your route to parenthood looks like then what I do want to say is that you will be able to find some answers within the fertility podcast because we're not just focusing on a heterosexual couple in any way we'll be talking about the things to consider for alternative routes to parenthood I mean the the fertility testing side of it whoever you are is pretty standard isn't it yeah absolutely and I think that's the the key isn't it we're we're going to be very inclusive with all our information and make sure that we cover all different routes to creating your family because I know from some of the conversations that I've had with gay men that there could be an assumption that you'll be fine and you just need extra help in obviously making a baby yet when it comes to testing your sperm health and we know full well that there are all sorts of impacts on sperm health 
that some of the men have been much more surprised when they just assumed that part of it would be fine. Yeah, well, I think this is general assumption, isn't there, that actually the problem lies with the woman and that goes way back and that's why we focus so much on gynecology and, and less so on men's fertility and neurology because there is this assumption that because the woman is the one that's going to be carrying the baby that the problem lies with her. I had that exact same conversation with a lady today where she said, I know it's my fault and anyway, I don't like that word fault. There's no blame to be associated. But my kind of retort was, well, how can you be absolutely sure? We can't just assume that it's the woman. Do you hear that a lot? Women blaming themselves. Yeah. Oh, blame is huge. And do you know what else I hear, which is really interesting, is when it's a male fertility factor issue, sometimes women will take the blame for that with their family and their friends to protect their partner which is really interesting. You see, that whole secrecy part when it's male factor, I don't know whether it helps or hinders because on the one hand, you're protecting the partner, but on the other hand, you're hindering any kind of conversation come about because yep. I know from, from our experience of male factor, it was just not talked about and it's still not really talked about. And I think that only when pushed, the conversation has has then started to be explored and the impact of it. And so I never know. I think when you are a woman dealing with male factor, you need to remind yourself that it's also, uh, it's, it's, there's an element of grief there. And definitely there's all sorts of things that we talked about blame that women might be blaming themselves anyway. There's, there's all sorts of other emotions. There's, there's blame that you might feel resentment you might feel towards your partner and then from their part there's guilt and there's shame and and this is kind of the stuff that we're going to be talking more about we don't want to kind of bombard you with too much at the start of the podcast but we are going to be explaining more about the emotional side of it because I think that's something that's really important to stress right from the start with what this podcast is is about because it's here to support you it's here to educate and empower you but most importantly, to just help you understand that there's a lot going on here. It's not just the, the, the fact that you're not getting pregnant. And you know what? I think it's also a reminder that you're not on your own, that there are so many other women and men in similar situations to you. And I hope that this podcast is a little bit like a friend, a friend to hold your hand as you're going through your fertility journey. We're really pleased to be working with Bioglan on the Fertility Podcast. Bioglan's red krill oil is a pure source of omega-3, which supports heart, brain and eye health. And it also contains sustainable sourced krill oil from the Antarctic Ocean, which I've been learning a lot about. It's also quicker for our bodies to absorb, much more so than normal fish oil. So we get the health benefit faster. And the good news is there's no fishy aftertaste or reflux. Now, I take these little red pills daily and they really are super small and easy to swallow. And what are the benefits of omega-3 when it comes to fertility, Kate? Well, that's a really interesting question. There are some studies to show that omega-3 can improve in sperm quality, actually, which is really interesting. Uh, There are actually a few randomised control trials and those are our gold standards. So those are the really, the research studies that you really need to be looking at. And they show that there is this improvement. With regards to egg health, there are studies, but they're low of lower quality. But it, it does show that there are potentially some improvements in egg health. But I think when it comes to egg health, we still need to do more studies to fully understand the benefits. So in terms of what you're going to take when you are looking to optimise your fertility as much as possible, omega-3, 
Yeah, absolutely. I recommend it to my patients, to both male and female. Why not? So if you want to discover the Biogland difference, it's available to purchase now at Holland and Barrett, Amazon and Tesco. So we're relaunching the Fertility Podcast at a time where there's still a lot of uncertainty. In the UK, we're still in lockdown. And whilst we have the vaccination and... There's amazing work being done. Kate has been involved in vaccinating people, so we need oh, to give no. Kate a little round of applause. That's been it's been a new weekend pastime for you, hasn't it? It has, and I'm loving it. It's great fun, actually. So it's a great. It feels really good to be doing something physically, being able to do something about all of this horribleness that's going on. But also, it's a great excuse to go out and socialise. Obviously, maintaining social distancing throughout. Um, but it's good. It's really good. I'm loving it. The thing is, there's still a lot of inconsistency, isn't there, about whether you should have it when you're trying to conceive. And we do chat with Dr. James Nikopoulos about this. James is our new resident fertility expert. And each week he is going to be answering some of your questions in our Ask the Expert bit. So do make sure you keep listening to the end to hear that. And you can also ping us your questions via Fertility Poddy on Twitter and Instagram or in our closed Facebook group, which is the Fertility Podcast. But Kate, what are you telling your patients about the vaccine? Because it is inconsistent and we've been trying to stay as up to date as we can be with what advice we're offering. Yeah, it is difficult. And I think it's partly difficult because obviously the original advice that came out has changed over time. So I think initially it said very much that pregnant women shouldn't have the vaccine and that women who are trying to conceive should avoid the vaccine for three months prior prior to, you know, prior to having the vaccine. So that that kind of set, I think, a lot of anxiety and made women understandably concerned that there was therefore a risk with pregnancy and fertility. However, that's not the truth at all. That's not how it is. What it how it is is that we the data isn't there. As time goes by, we're gathering more and more data. But right now, we know that there's no data to suggest that there's any risk to uh, women who are trying to conceive, and therefore the advice from the JCVI. And the British Fertility Society is that women don't need to avoid pregnancy after a COVID vaccine. And that's really clear. With regards to pregnant women, they need to weigh up the risks of their potential risk of getting COVID. And certainly if they have any comorbidities, is is there going to be issues with regards to their health? And for some women, it'll be really clear that actually it's much safer for them to get the vaccine. At the moment, we're only vaccinating key workers. And I think that's really important to. to say that because we're not vaccinating the general population of childbearing women currently. So there's a little bit more time before majority women need to worry about it. But certainly for key workers um, that are, you know, thinking about IVF or wanting to conceive, many of those have already been offered the vaccine and had the vaccine. And I'm I'm hearing from ladies as well that, you know, they're they've had the vaccine and they're literally starting an IVF cycle and they're not worried about it at all. And that's fantastic. And I think that's how we should all really view it. If you've got a chance to get your vaccine, if you need it because you're a key worker or you have other health problems, have the vaccine. So hopefully that puts your mind at rest. And we're always open to answer more of your questions. Like I said, we'll have James's thoughts on it later in the show. We've also heard, Kate, about some clinics, especially in big cities, having to halt treatment due to the availability of their anaesthetist. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I heard this from a patient of mine, actually, who um, was due to start IVF and has been told that it's on hold because the anaesthetists for her clinic are actually being drafted into 
ICU into the COVID wards. So understandably. So I've only heard that once so far, but I, you know, it could well be happening in other areas. And I've also heard as well from a patient that her um, outpatient appointment to even, you know, start at the very beginning of treatments, um, that's been cancelled because the, her clinic isn't seeing any outpatients. So I think there are some things happening a little bit across the country, but by no means it's not a blanket approach. So best advice is to, to check with your hospital or your clinic. And we will always do our best to bring the most up-to-date kind of advice that's available, whether it's on the podcast as we're publishing or on our socials. So just keep checking and uh, let us know if there's questions uh, in all our socials as we've we've given you and we'll we'll remind you of them at the end. But for now, we're going to talk a bit more about your menstrual cycle, one of Kate's favourite topics. One of the things that is still kind of dumbfounding a lot of people is tracking their cycle. And we know now we're in an age where there's loads of apps and there's all sorts of things you can do. But I know it's something, again, that you're really keen to help people demystify, aren't you? Yes, I'm really passionate about it. There's a lot of evidence suggests that having fertility awareness knowledge reduces your time to conception considerably. But we're really bad at giving that information. If a woman's trying to conceive, she might go to a doctor and, and perhaps she's been trying for a year or six months and, and will be told to go away and keep trying, but not given that vital information that can make the difference. So there are three fertility indicators that you can observe throughout your cycle, and these change. So one is temperature, one is cervical mucus, and one is the difference, the changes in your cervix. And these, I think, are amazing. This is, this is lovely information that Mother Nature has given us that tells you so much about when you're fertile and that finite fertile window. And so if you observe these indicators, you can gather so much information about your cycle. And it's really, really empowering. Mm. Do you think it's better or it gets a bit overwhelming if people are using apps or do you think it's better that they use like a notebook? I think it depends on what you're choosing because there are so many different types of apps or monitors. So you can go from the very basic and the very basic would be like a a calendar app which does no more than actually writing in a diary so it's not giving you any more information then you can move on to something that actually does use some physiological information like temperature and that can give you a little bit more guidance and then obviously the monitors and the sensors give you an awful lot more the only issue with some of the apps that claim to be able to identify your fertile window is that sometimes the the algorithms that they use aren't sophisticated enough to be able to really give you that guidance. So I always say choose the right thing for you and what your needs are and be careful in your choices. Because one of the things that I talk a lot about in the coaching work that I do is I get people to think about the things that they've been doing whilst they've been trying to conceive and the things that feel good and the things that don't feel good. And all too often people talk about when they're like using the ovulation sticks or they're tracking their temperature and that it causes quite a lot of stress. Mm. What would you say if people are like, going, no, no, me, because it does seem to be quite a common one that people find it more stressed than it's worth. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think obviously if it's causing any stress, then stop. There's, there's absolutely no point in adding any more stress into your fertility journey. Interestingly, what I often see is that women also find it quite reassuring. So particularly if they're learning and they've learned how to use this information correctly, perhaps just not following an app, but they're actually have been taught how to use it correctly, then they can find it really reassuring, particularly for women that you know don't know if they're ovulating or when they're ovulating. Having that knowledge is incredibly empowering. So I think there's two sides of the coin, but if you definitely find it stressful, don't do it. If you find yeah. it's useful for you, excellent. 
If you're talking in terms of just starting to try to have a baby and you've got no idea of your period or anything, is it as basic as just starting to note down your dates? That's a really good start. Yeah. So by writing down when your last period was on a calendar and working out how long your cycle is. So the first day of your cycle is the first day of your period. And the last day of your cycle is the day before your next period. So even that information, you can determine whether or not you're having normal length cycles, which go from about 21, 25 to up to 35 days in length, or whether you're having really short cycles or long cycles. And that can often give you quite a lot of information. And it's great information to take to your doctor or your specialist and say, this is what's happening with my cycle. Do you think all too often people assume that they've got a kind of 28 day cycle? Oh, yes. Do you know what? This is my pet hate. And this is because this is what we're taught at school, that your cycle is 28 days and you're ovulate on day 14. I look at cycles day in, day out. That's my bread and butter. And rarely do I see a woman that has consistently a 28-day cycle and equally consistently ovulates on day 14. It moves around and that's normal and quite healthy. But we do need to get away from this, perpetuating this myth of a 28-day cycle and ovulation on day 14. Is there still that assumption in the GP practice that it's a 28-day cycle or is that knowledge filtering through at those early conversations that people might be having? I think there is still that assumption. Yes, definitely. And a really good example of that is the day 21 progesterone test, which any listeners will will know that if you're needing to confirm ovulation, you will have a day 21 progesterone test. And unfortunately, it's called day 21 because it's accurate if taken on day 21 of a 28-day cycle. But if your cycle is shorter or longer, then it's inaccurate. And that, therefore, that could be quite devastating because it can give you the, the diagnosis that you're not ovulating. But actually, you just haven't ovulated yet because your cycle is longer or you ovulated way before and therefore it's not picking it up. So yes, unfortunately, that myth of the 28-day cycle does still exist. And like I said, it's we need to get away from it. So this is a bit of a starting point for ladies to think about. When it comes to guys, and we're talking about the early days of basically trying to conceive, I mean, we've talked a lot on the fertility podcast before about things to be aware of in terms of kind of sperm health and and general fertility health. But if it's younger guys, what would your starting point be? Would it be the kind of protein shakes in the gym as a Mm. first start? (laughs) Yeah, again, that's my my other real, real pet hate. I have two teenage boys. They don't take protein shakes but I know a lot of their friends are and this is a really worrying thing because what we're seeing is a correlation with protein shake use and poor sperm parameters so if you think we've got a generation growing up that are going to the gym they're pumping the iron they're taking these protein shakes because they want to look good for women but actually what they're ending up doing is reducing their sperm count and shrinking their testicles now how farcical is that (laughs) You know, it's crazy. But yeah, but I think general lifestyle for men and women in the early years is so important. So, you know, thinking about your alcohol consumption, I know that's difficult when you're out partying and that's kind of what you want to do and you absolutely should enjoy your life. But it's just having that sense check every now and again, thinking about smoking, thinking about recreational drugs and importantly, thinking about sexually transmitted infections as well. 
What about the pill, though? If people are listening and they are not really thinking about starting a family yet, but they're on the pill. And I mean, I was listening to a conversation recently where a lady was taking the pill back to back and she was kind of under the assumption that it would be the best way for her to manage things and and, and definitely not get pregnant. But if you're doing something like that and you're taking it back to back for a period of time and then you decide you want to start trying, is there any downsides to, to using contraception like that? I think it's really important to get this in perspective when you're not wanting to conceive and maybe when you're in your 20s or even in your early 30s and actually having a pregnancy would be devastating, then contraception is absolutely what you need. You need a good, reliable contraception. And there is no evidence to suggest that using contraception affects your fertility. So if you're not there yet and wanting to conceive, then absolutely Backing your pills back to back, actually, it's not so much of a problem. You can definitely do that for three cycles and then have a break. And then if you think about other methods of contraception where you don't have periods at all, like the implant and injection, again, that's okay not to have a period. So I think it's important to not be frightened of contraception because it's needed. And then eventually, when you do want to start conceiving, maybe come off it a little bit earlier, a few months before, and then you can get yourself your body into really good health before you start actively trying to conceive. And the other thing, we've shared conversations about tests that you can do to kind of check your fertile health, your certain levels. We've spoken with likes of Modern Fertility in the past. We've spoken with MediChecks who more recently have started home testing for you to learn about your fertile health. And there's tests for men as well. And so if we're talking about a younger audience who are maybe just keen to know their options, would you say that early testing is empowering or or is it going to just scare them? I think it's actually empowering. And I'm seeing an increase in that, actually, that we're becoming more aware and more, you know, more aware of our health as a nation. And that can only be a good thing. I think the important thing is, is if you're going to have some home testing, and then you're not sure on the result, make sure you get advice from your doctor. Most of the organisations that offer home testing will have a facility where you actually get a report from a doctor anyway. So you're getting really good, accurate information. But I think it's absolutely fine if you want to be curious about your health and find this information out go for it but just make sure you've got the support from a professional when you've got your result and the other thing that I've not really asked you your thoughts on Kate and I've oh talked gosh. about it on the podcast don't be worried um, <laughs> but I was talking with somebody the other day about it and it's about egg freezing it's about if you're younger if you're in your early 20s or even you know mid to late 20s and or even early 30s but we're talking really about in your 20s as the kind of optimal time if egg freezing is something that you maybe heard about what do you think about it Kate because I was talking to someone the other day and I was saying that I think it's a really again empowering thing for women to know about to have the option of doing and we had a great chat with Abby who was a a 25 year old who was diagnosed with breast cancer and was able to freeze her eggs and she talked about how unobtrusive the procedure was when she thought that it would be much more intrusive than she expected and I was telling somebody about that recently because they were under the assumption that it was a very invasive procedure and that people were kind of being sold into it without really having all the information whereas I don't quite agree with that I think it's a it's a really interesting option to know about and to think about well I'm all for choice and I think offering women choice is vitally important I think there are some things that are important to consider primarily the fact that although the freezing process has got a lot better it still isn't 100% so you could decide to freeze your eggs but actually then when you wanted to come to use them not have that reassurance I think also it's really important that women don't 
definitely see that as a definite reassurance for the fact that I've said that actually it may not be what you want at the end of it. And therefore, you know, once you decide to have a have a child that you kind of go for it and don't delay, especially with age is not on your side. So whilst I think it's an excellent opportunity and it, it presents great choice for women, I think it does come with some real considerations too. And I'm not saying that it shouldn't be offered. Absolutely, it should. But if you find the right man and the time is right, just go for it. What we just want to make sure is that you know all your options. That's been the whole kind of point of the Fertility Podcast in all the time that we've been making this content. So if you have any questions about your cycle, do contact me on Instagram. I'm at Your Fertility Journey and it's in the show notes too. Ask the expert. 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 So welcome to Dr. James Nikopoulos, who's the clinical director at the Lister Fertility Clinic in London. And James is going to be joining us um, at various times over the coming months um, to answer your questions. We'll be asking you uh, within our closed Facebook group and on our Instagram uh, questions that are on your mind that maybe you've been seeing your your consultant and you've walked away with with more questions because we always want to kind of give you that expert answer rather than you asking one another online and maybe just getting yourself in a bit of a pickle. So first and foremost, James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I hope you're all well. And also, I'll put links to previous chats that I have had with James. Um, But this is, Kate, your first time talking with James in the the wonderful virtual world of, of the podcast, isn't it? It is. I'm very excited. And especially as I'm just um, kind of reading about you and seeing that you specialise in PCOS, which is an area that I'm really passionate about. So I'm really keen to pick your brains about that at some point. Okay, no pressure. Well, <laughs> as we build as our experts. So, you know, maybe we'll have to have a head to head. Who knows more? Oh, my goodness. No uh, way. My, my money's on Kate. <laughs> no, my money's not. James, just talk a bit about what the clinic looks like at the moment obviously we're speaking whilst there's still lockdown restrictions in the UK um there's a lot of concern from people having treatment delayed maybe people wanting to come for treatment obviously maybe getting poorly questions about the vaccine how do you feel things are I think things are things are it's been, it's been a long year for everybody um, and lots of processes um, and safety measures have had to change and, and be put into place to make sure we can treat people I think for for all clinics to reopen back in May after the initial lockdown, a lot of things had to be ready um, to ensure patient safety, staff safety. And as long as those measures are in place um, and reviewed regularly, the HFEA in general are happy for treatments to carry on. Clearly, the biggest responsibility um, we have is to ensure that we're not adding extra burden on the NHS at the moment where they're struggling enough. So it's a real difficult balance. A lot of, frustratingly, a lot of the NHS clinics have had to close to free up space, to free up staff, which is really frustrating for those people who, who were about to have their funded treatments. Um, you know, we, we remain open, but we, you know, we're keenly aware of our, of our social responsibilities. Um, so it's just trying to get that balance right. But for now, you know, we're still going, we're still treating, uh, and we can't see that changing. Fingers crossed. Mm, must have been a stressful time for you know staff as well with all these changes and making sure that you've you're working in a COVID secure environment. Yeah, I, I think I've got to be honest and say probably has been the most stressful year of my working life. I think that mm. um, partly making sure we do everything for the patient safety. Also, you know, you have a responsibility when you're running a clinic for your for your staff as well. And there's a lot as everybody at home. There's a lot of very anxious. Um, frustrated staff um, who want answers to questions that that we, none of us really have uh, absolute answers to, and 
no sooner do you make one decision than the goalposts change a little bit. So it's been hard for everybody. And for people listening, I mean, we always try to share links to what the HFEA are saying in terms of any questions people have, because mm-hmm. when we see it within the communities, we, we, we always say, you know, best go back and ask your clinic. If people are listening, I mean, are we still confident that that's the best kind of way to, to, to get your questions answered, check the HFEA and ideally go back to your clinic and, and you know, they will be giving you as much as they can. Yeah, abs- absolutely. You know, the, the HFEA regulate based on sort of best practice and the British Fertility Societies, the European societies came out with pretty clear guidelines on, on how to keep people safe that the HFEA ensured we had in place. And I do think they, they remain uh, the main source of information. And honestly, pre-Christmas, uh, it was the first thing I did when we went into tier four post-Christmas when we went into lockdown. That's the first thing I did. I had the HFEA on sort of refresh every five seconds to see what they were going to say. So I think it's the same for us. I think they are the, the, the best and most impartial source of information. Okay, this is a question, a very topical question that we've had um, about the COVID vaccine. Don't sigh. <laughs> There's so much about this at the moment. So a question has been asked, um, for patients diagnosed with high natural killer cells, Will the vaccine increase those readings? Oh my goodness, that that's um, that's a great question. Um, I know. Where do you start with that? Okay, well, look, I, th- I think the first thing to talk about is the validity of the whole NK thing completely. The whole concept of, of somebody having an overactive immune system, recognizing an embryo, something foreign, and rejecting it um, has increasingly been shown, for want of a better phrase, probably not to be physiologically plausible and. The powers that be are increasingly suggesting we couldn't be doing, we shouldn't be doing it because there's no great evidence that it affects outcome, and no great evidence that the treatments are effective or safe. Having said that, there are certain scenarios, you know, where some clinics will do it, and I will leave that for a different conversation. In terms of vaccine and immunes, there should be absolutely no link. There's no reason to think that number one, the NKs are likely to be really the key factor, and there's no reason to think that your vaccine will in any way affect that reproductive immunology part. So the two shouldn't really be connected. Good. Okay. On the vaccine front, and we are trying to share as much information as we can. I know, Kate, you're being brilliant on your on your socials about it. We have had a question saying, is it safe to take the COVID vaccine if about to undergo IVF? My feeling is that, especially in view of the year that we've all had, you know, if you are high risk and you've been recommended to have the vaccine, then you should have the vaccine. The evidence in general, does not suggest that there is a concern in terms of the impact on fertility or pregnancy, which is why the recommendation now is you don't have to delay pregnancy after having the vaccine. My view is clear. Get on and have the vaccine. If you are about to start IVF and your concern is, okay, I want to get a second dose of vaccine in to be safe completely, then yes, we all talk about hard time is of the essence, but realistically, a month or two months is not going to significantly be the deal breaker in terms of whether your treatment works or not. I know you know, a lot of people have waited a long time, so another month or two would be a nightmare, but it's not going to really impact significantly on outcome. So if you are high risk, get the vaccine. And I think what's really good as well, isn't it, is that at the moment, obviously, that's we're only vaccinating anyone at high risk. So by the time it comes to vaccinating the majority of women of childbearing age, which probably won't be until the summer or late, you know, early autumn, we'll have a bit more information and data by then, won't we, as well? So absolutely, absolutely. Decision-making. So yeah. if people are because I've had quite a lot of questions about this, people that are about to start treatment and they're they're panicking because I thought the advice was to not 
have the vaccine if they're about to start treatment? You're saying only if they're high risk. If If you're being called because you're high risk, then I think, you know, the risk benefit, you know, my concerns over COVID outweigh any other concerns. So have, have the vaccine and then you can crack on with getting pregnant. So the second group of women is those people who haven't been called through and probably are going to get called through potentially in the summer. And what should they do? Is that is that the question? Really? Yeah, I, I, there's no right or wrong. You know, my, my feeling is there's two choices. You get on have treatment, you get pregnant and then you delay the vaccine to to later next year, being aware that at the moment there's no evidence to suggest that if you get COVID in pregnancy, it's likely to be any more severe or you're more likely to get it if you are pregnant is option number one. Option number two is that you wait until you're called, have the vaccine um, if you're concerned about the COVID risk and then have treatment thereafter. But that may well be, you know, five or six months down the line. So my, my gut feeling is just to, just to get on with a vaccine if you're called for it. If you're not likely to get called for it for five or six, for four or five months, then perhaps if you're not high risk, get on with your treatment. Um, and then we take a step back and, and delay vaccine until after pregnancy. Ask the expert. 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 So if that's made you think of a question that you'd like answered, do let us know. You can come and join our close Facebook group. Just search for The Fertility Podcast. Always use the hashtag questions when you ask them so we can find them easily to ask James next time we speak to him. Our Facebook community is such a lovely place. People are kind of so helpful to one another and it's also where we can carry on the conversation and find out what you think of the episodes. There's so many people that are just there. You can rant, you can share something really useful that you found out. It's just a really gorgeous, safe place. So as I said, just look for the Fertility Podcast. We'll also be telling you what's coming up in the podcast, if there's questions that you might have about a certain topic and we're talking about it. So we really hope to see you there. Plus, if you have a moment to rate and review this podcast, we'd love that because it really helps other people find it. The main thing is we're here with you. You're so not alone with any of this. So we hope you'll join us again. Take care of yourself and until the next time. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.